Well, good morning. Good morning, everybody. It's been a while. It's been, what, what a month? It's been quite the um, kind of whirlwind, whirlwind of, a, of a month. I hate to, hate to break up y'all's conversation, but we need to get started, if you don't mind. Yeah, no, no worries. Um, it's been kind of a whirlwind of a month. We had a Went on vacation in Alaska, and then we came back. And Well, in the middle of the Alaskan trip, uh, my company decided to reorg everything that I'm associated with, so I um, inherited a bunch of responsibilities. And then um, came back. Where, what's that? Still have an office. I still have an office, yes, yeah. And uh, a lot more stuff to do, that's for sure. So, uh, so that, that's, I guess, the good side of it. Um, so when we came back. We were back for a week, and uh, it was... You know, I, I think I told Saunders uh, it was an intense week, and then I went on on vacation again. And uh, he said, "You know, you just said that um, uh, that week in between vacations was really intense." And he said, "I don't think anybody's ever said that in the history of the world." So I'm like, "Yeah, that does sound pretty absurd." Uh, so then we came back, and then um, of course yesterday um, I got to watch Jan walk across the the stage at Texas A&M to get her master's um, in education. So. Yeah, yeah. Keep the whoops to yourself. Yeah, no, I'm kidding. Uh, no. Uh, so anyway, yeah. So like I said, it's been it's been a crazy 30 days. I'm happy to be back, ready to get back in the in the saddle and and talk some more some more theology. So as you can see, today we're going to talk about grace. Um, great topic. I think it's a misunderstood topic by um, a lot of folks, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to to clean some of that stuff up today. So um, let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, once again, we thank you uh, for this morning. Thank you for this group of people coming together and uh, faithfully uh, studying your word and studying who you are. Um, just help us to uh, speak only truth and remember only truth um, as we go through this um, amazing topic today. Uh, we love you. We trust you. Just help us to glorify you in everything that we do. For all these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so question. Well, no, sorry, that's the next slide. So Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Now, I think every, uh, every Christian in the world, of course, affirms this because it's a pretty much a straight-up statement that we have uh, you know, from the Bible that, that Paul wrote. But the question is, what does, what does grace mean? And we can use the same terms when we talk with folks, but a lot of times we may be using the same terms, but we're not hearing the same thing. So I want to talk about that a little bit more today. So we'll start off with just a simple question. What is grace? We can go with the Sunday school answer. It's fine. Go ahead. Unmerited favor. favor. Okay. Yeah, so that's um, unmerited favor. So... um, that is not wrong, right? Um, it is certainly the favor of God, and it's certainly unmerited, um, but I'm not sure that it goes far enough. Um, it leaves a lot of questions uh, that are unanswered, and so I'll go through these, and since we have Aggies on, in the audience, um, obviously, then a, a rhetorical question is one that you don't actually answer. So, all right. So, rhetorical questions. Uh, do we receive grace because we trust Jesus, or do we trust Jesus because we receive grace? How does God decide who receives it? For that matter, does God decide who receives it? 
Does grace mean that God doesn't care about sin? Does he just forget about it? How does the Trinity fit in? Is grace just a Jesus thing? Can we ever be so good that we don't need it or so bad that we can never receive it? And can we ever fall from grace? And then finally, what makes grace so amazing? And so if you think about it, if, if you're talking to somebody, if you're talking to maybe an unchurched person, um, and you begin to talk about grace, and, you, and we talk about it as being unmerited favor, then that does leave a lot of, a lot of wiggle room, and, and there's a lot of questions that need to be answered there. So we're going to go through some of those today. So these are actual questions, so I'm going to wait for an answer. So is grace unmerited favor, emphasis on unmerited, or is it demerited favor? Now, what's the difference? Am I just being pedantic here? Okay, great. So what's a demerit? Something guilty of punishment, right? Okay, that's a kind of textbook definition of, of demerit. So when we receive grace, is it that God is merely giving us something that we don't deserve? Or is God not only giving us something that we don't deserve, he's also not giving us something that we do deserve. In other words, not only is he not punishing us, he's giving us favor. You follow me there? Well, the lack of punishment is mercy. Okay. Right? Right. Great, great. So lack of punishment, so um, is it the next question? But I'll tell you what, we'll get to that in just a second. So, so what does demerited uh, take into account that unmerited does not? And what I'll say in the word is sin. Unmerited favor doesn't really take sin into account. Demerited favor is something that does take sin into account. Now, getting into what Stuart just mentioned, he said um, not being punished is mercy, and then the favor part is grace, right? So... That's how the, uh, I guess I'm answering my own question, that's how they would be distinct. That's how grace and mercy would be distinct, where we say that mercy is, is not getting what you do deserve, and grace is getting what you don't deserve, okay? Can we separate them? Can any of us receive grace without mercy? How's that? Okay. So... There, there's what? There doesn't seem to be any mercy associated with that. But they're not, but folks aren't, it, common grace, I agree with you, and we're actually going to go through a common grace verse here in a few minutes. But what do the people that receive common grace actually deserve? Punishment, right? But they're not getting punishment, they're getting grace, they're getting common grace, they're getting rain on their crops and things of that nature. And that's kind of the, that's the point that I'm, that I'm, I'm making. All right. So how are grace and love related? And how are they distinct? You guys are quiet today. Okay. Grace comes from love. Sharon? Okay. If you love someone, you, you do something that doesn't seem graceful. Okay. 
what I'll say is that um, grace is love in the presence of sin. In other words, grace is God loving us even though he, I'm not going to say he shouldn't. Uh, He doesn't do anything that he shouldn't. But uh, grace is God loving us despite us being sinners. Does that make sense? So love is one of those things where you love someone, okay? You um, you're out for their best interest, and then grace is action on God's part, love on God's part, without um, in, in spite of sin. Make sense? But we don't deserve it. Exactly, we don't deserve it, and that's the whole point, right? So how are grace and sin related? Well, without sin, you don't need grace, right? And so, is grace present where there is no sin? So in other words, it's clear that in the, in the first two chapters of the Bible, God loved Adam and Eve. He loved his creation. But there was no need for grace because, um, because there was no sin. Grace came into play in chapter 3 when sin came into play. Does that make sense? So when we talk about grace, grace is God loving in, in spite of sin. And so does grace mean that God looks the other way at sin? No, clearly not. We'll get into that in just a few more minutes. All right. So I've got up here what I call three explanations of grace. I don't want to call it three definitions because definitions are kind of uh, comprehensive and I don't want to try to define it. I just want to kind of explain grace and try to explain um, what it is that I'm talking about here. All right. So first explanation. Are dogs lovable? Well, when I ask you if, if dogs are lovable, I don't want you to picture Coco. This is Coco. Um, you might want to picture that, which was I took this morning because... Um, <laughs> But no, don't picture Coco. I want you to picture something like that. Okay? Now, I get it. That's a hyena. It's not a dog. But let's, let's consider this a dog for the time being. It's the, the meanest, nastiest picture that I could find. Okay? So the idea here is that a wild dog is something that is not lovable. It, um, if you bring a wild dog into your house, it, it poops everywhere. It um, tears things up, you know, just like that. Um, it, you know, it may bite you, it may bite your, your children, um, eat your cat, you know, whatever the case, get up on the counter, do all kinds of stuff, right? But what a human being does when they adopt a dog is to bring that dog in and make that dog lovable, train that dog so that the dog understands um, and begins to change its behavior and become something um, that it wasn't before. And so what you end up with is, um, is a, a friend, a companion, right? Something that's, that's lovable. But it's through that training that, um, that we're able to, that the dog is able to become lovable. Okay? And so I think that's a great analogy for the way God deals with us. Okay? So... Romans 5 says, God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So sinners, you could say, are unlovable. 
we are rebellious against him. You know, we tear up his furniture, et cetera, and so forth, right? But what does it say? He, he loved us anyway. But then what does he do? He, when, with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, he begins to sanctify us. He begins, us, begins to conform us to the image of Christ. And Titus 3 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. It's that renewal of the Holy Spirit, where regeneration is that positional thing, where you are you were in Adam, now you're in Christ. Um, you were an unbeliever, now you're a believer. And then the, the renewal is where you're being conformed to the image of Christ. Like the dog that we bring in off the street, God is making us lovable. Okay, He's conforming us to his, his son. So what, we, what I say is the first explanation of grace is grace is God loving the unlovable. Okay? We don't deserve it. So, in that regard, let's look at some implications of that. Yes, sir. So, um, I don't, I don't, I'm just thinking about the statement that, that sanctification makes us lovable. Okay. Um, how does that work? I mean, because we, we are never, aren't we never lovable? Aren't we ne- ever deserve God's love? Right. So, okay, great point. So, let's distinguish just a little bit. So he saved, he justifies us, and then he begins to sanctify us. Well, as we're come, becoming closer to the image of Christ, I mean, we're kind of working down here and, and Christ is up here, but once we become glorified, then we will be sinless at that point. So that, I, I was just thinking of that as an extension of the sanctification process. Yeah, yes, sir. And I would, I would say that justification is what makes us lovable. Mm-hmm. Justified, he mm-hmm. no longer sees us as sinful. Right. He sees us as righteous. Yes. So at that point, we're lovable. It's not the. I mean, sanctification is 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 a good thing, obviously, but I think it's justification. That yes, I, I agree with that. That's a good point that too. Yeah. Apart from sanctification, sanctification, mm-hmm. and as we get, as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, as we become more uh, obedient to His commands, uh, that those stages. Mm-hmm. Which, is, which is that promise of God that, mm-hmm. you know, after we're dead, then, then that sanctification, that ultimate mm-hmm. sanctification does make us lovable. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that, that, makes, that, that makes sense. Yep. But we, we just, we're all, um, we have to be really careful not to think of ourselves as we grow in Christ mm-hmm. as being better in the eyes of God. Mm-hmm. No, I agree with that. You get into like John Wesley's theology and stuff like that, where he really thought that we could like perfect ourselves and stuff. Yeah, yeah, we're we're not going there. It's just, uh, I mean, that was kind of shorthand. Um, but yeah, it's really the sanctification and the glorification, kind of being the the completion of that. And then Stewart also makes a good point where, when, um, and I was thinking of kind of a distinction here. So when we're justified, you know, we may be. 
you know, that, or we are that, okay? Um, but when, um, when, Christ, when, uh, God look, when the Father, when God looks at us, he sees Christ, and that's called imputed righteousness, right? He sees Christ's righteousness in us. Um, even though we aren't, um, we're declared righteous, we aren't, I hate to say aren't really righteous, but we don't, uh, we still sin, we still all these, do all of these things, but Christ's righteousness is, is given to us. And then in, imparted righteousness, um, and we have to be careful here, there's distinctions and stuff, is where you become more, more sanctified, and then that's where the glorification thing. So Stuart does make a good point on, on that. And uh, George made a, a good clarification. All right, so implications. So is grace a communicable attribute or an incommunicable attribute? So before we answer the question, I'm going to ask somebody, what is a communicable versus an incommunicable attribute? Didn't Mike just teach on What? Go ahead. Communicable is one that we can share with God. Okay. Okay. Right. Okay, great. So a communicable attribute is something that God is and that he communicates to us or shares to, with us. And so we you can say, in a sense, we part, participate in that. And then incommunicable is something that we, we don't. Okay. So grace, go ahead. We can. Oh, right. Yeah, not, not just don't, but we can. Oh, right. Yeah, absolutely. So, for example, his independence. Um, yeah, we can't participate in that. Yeah, you're right. Good distinction. All right, so... Um, so grace is communicable. Grace is a communicable attribute. It's something that we can participate in. Now, just like love, you know, we are... You know, God is love. God is perfect love, okay? And, and we love, but we love in, a, in an imperfect way. And so it's an imperfect picture um, of of God's love, and uh, in, 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 well, in reality, it's it's an imperfect reflection of God's love because it always originates with Him. Mm, pardon me. And so, with grace, we participate in that in that as well. So, what are the implications of grace being a communicable attribute? Doesn't it beef up the or or um, torque up or whatever the, the right verb is, the um, expectations of us, the way we live our lives, right? How should it impact our attitudes and actions toward others? Were you, did you... Right, right. And, yeah, so, right, so this is not, when we talk about grace in terms of it being a communicable, communicable attribute, which it, it almost universally is considered a communicable attribute, it's not in the sense of salvation, it's in the sense that um, we, we love people that are, are unloving, so like I was explaining. Now, if you also think about it, um, George brought up in, um, common grace a few minutes ago, right? And so common grace is not a salvation thing either. God brings the rain on 
on the, the, the righteous and the unrighteous, etc. right? So grace is not always a salvation thing. Um, all right. So the question is, do you love the, the unlovable? And that's a, that's a hard question to ask. Um, because, or it's a hard question to answer, I should say. Because when we, you know, I, I, I talk about, you know, our, our friends, being around people, spending time with people, loving on people that are easy to love, you know. I'm looking at the Luptons, and as much as I hate to say this, they're very easy to love people, okay. So there is no reward in that. The reward is just, like, being around the Luptons, right. But you have somebody like Caleb that is very difficult to love. No, I'm kidding. Amen. And so, you know, other folks, not so much. You know, it, they might be a little bit of a chore to be around. But again, God loved us, right, and still loves us, even though we are still unlovable, and still gives us his riches, his glory, you know, things of that nature. All right, Matthew 5, this is, of course, as Jesus saying, uh, speaking. He says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, a question here, in context, sons of your Father, what does that, that sons of your Father mean? Huh? Resemblance, exactly. So let's go back to first century. If, how do we... Um, and thinking about Jesus' life, what uh, vocation do we believe that Jesus had? Carpenter. Why? Because his father was a carpenter. And so if you are the son of a carpenter, then you're probably a carpenter. Because you had this, this idea of handing down these, this, this, these crafts from, uh, and skills from, from generation to generation. And so when we see... Uh, sons of your father who is in heaven, what it's saying is you are uh, imitating your father uh, who is in heaven. So I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. This is the common grace that, that George was talking about. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. All right, any questions so far? So grace is God loving the unlovable. All right. Second explanation. So let's talk about medieval theology for a minute. This would be pre-Reformation, okay? Um, mankind was seen as spiritual lazy. As opposed to what? Are we spiritually lazy or are we spiritually dead? Okay, so we're not spiritually lazy, we're spiritually dead. The priest would give sacraments. Okay, now I got this spiritual red bull up there. It's like the priest would do their, you know, their prayers and they would draw on this pool of, of uh, stuff um, called grace and they would dispense it out in, in the sacraments. And Michael Reeves, one of, you know, one, probably one of my favorite theologians these days, um, living theologians anyway, uh, he refers to it as like a, it's like a spiritual red bull. It gives you kind of this spiritual boost to kind of be righteous for a while, right? And then um, it would wear out, 
you know, over time. And then you'd have to go back to the priest to get more sacraments. And, and then, you know, so there's a rinse and repeat thing here, okay? So this idea of, uh, of grace was grace was thought of for a while at, and still is in certain churches. Grace is a, a thing that's created, depleted, and replenished. Okay? It's a thing that's, that's, that's generated, basically. So is grace a thing? Is it stuff that God gives us? Okay? So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, from early in the 20th century, mid-20th century, called the modern-day evangelical version of this as, he referred to it as abstract grace. So this idea of grace being the stuff that is handed out made its way into like more modern theology as well, Protestant theology. And um, we even see it in like certain statements of faith and that sort of thing. The first church that I actually went to, I remember the, they got a new pastor there and his, he wrote up the statement of faith and it had, um, it referred to this stuff called grace. And I remember I just, it, it just seemed creepy to me, even though I didn't exactly know why. So grace is not stuff. Grace is God giving himself to us. Okay? Grace is God giving himself to us. So when we get into evangelism, one of the things that happens is we use terms and we use slogans. And we refer to things like grace, and we say grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Now, if I ask you what is meant by God's riches, how would you respond? What, is God, what are God's riches? Think Romans 9 and 10. Wisdom, eternal life, that sort of thing. Those are, are God's riches. Okay? But if you're talking to an unbeliever, somebody that's unchurched, what are they hearing as God's riches? Health and wealth and success and that, and that sort of thing. Okay? So when we talk to people about um, evangelism and we're talking about grace and we're describing it, something like God's riches at Christ's expense can actually be very counterproductive. It can make it seem like this stuff that God is handing out. But if instead we refer to it as God's loving kindness and giving us Christ, then it has different implications. And specifically, it has different implications when we get into discipleship. Because in lots of Protestant denominations, we offer, offer um, grace, we offer salvation, um, it's free grace, and, and people believe, but then we turn to talk about discipleship, and we want to talk about holy living, and there's a disconnect there because they're going, hey, holy living, wait a minute, I thought grace was free. You know, you're, it's like a, it seems like you're doing this bait and switch thing on me, okay? So the idea is that we're, we're offering, what, what, well, what God is doing is he's giving us Christ, he's giving us himself. We walk in him, we walk with him. It's a renewal of life, and it's a changing of uh, renewal of the mind. And we have to remember, if we have Christ, we have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit works in us to, make it, to conform us to Christ.
Does that make sense? So, so when you talk about holy living, uh -huh. uh, using, I'll use the term uh, loosely, mm -hmm. you, can, you can get trapped in the legalistic view of sanctification. Mm -hmm. Sure. And um, and yes, you know, there's there is a with uh, uh, with regeneration, which mm -hmm. precedes grace. Right. Precedes everything. Uh, with regeneration, mm -hmm. we are made new. Out of that, by God's grace, we have faith. Uh -huh. You know, it's a gift of God through through His grace. Mm -hmm. um, and we begin this process of sanctification. But going back to my point earlier, just mm -hmm. we we never. Look on ourselves as having um, having really achieved this holy living thing, right? Uh, you know, we are in need as much in need today of of God's grace mm -hmm. as we were the day we were saved. You know, okay, that, that really never changes because right. because God's standard for if you want to be holy, if you're going to be defined as living in a holy manner, then you're perfect. Uh huh. And so far short of that. There's right. nothing we do that isn't tainted by sin. Right. Um, and so, and so that's the, really that's the joy of of the believer, and it turns us back to Christ uh -huh. constantly. Every day we're we're reliving the gospel, uh, you know, because we're being saved, uh, not saved again in one sense, but we're right. constantly being saved from our sin. Sure. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Go ahead. To get back to the term we used earlier, the Christian life doesn't end when we're justified. That's the beginning of it, and then the sanctification is the holy, is the, the striving to live a holy life. No, we don't ever achieve it until we're glorified. But but justification isn't the end; it's the beginning. It is, right? and the mm -hmm. sanctification occurs after that. Right. And there is. Uh, you know, we, we are changed. I don't mean to imply that the believer is not changed because God's work in us is, is going to accomplish things because it is God willing and mm -hmm. working in us according to his good pleasure. Sure. So it's the power of God who does change things, but we are never, based on, on uh, multiple places in Scripture, we're never, that change never results in a part of us that is perfectly sanctified. Right. No, I agree with that. Okay. So third explanation. Carl Truman says, let me find my iPad here. I'm going to read a somewhat extensive quote. Apologies. If you don't know who Carl Truman is, he's another one of my favorite living theologians. Um, knowing Ken, you have to make that distinction. So come on. There we go. All right. This is from his book. It's called Grace Alone, um, Salvation as a Gift of God. And I'm kind of jumping in the middle here, but I think you can probably pick up the context pretty, pretty quickly. Israel is who she is because she is the um, object of divine grace. And this truth is central to the great blessing that is to be given to the people of the Aaronic uh, benediction of number 6, verses 24 through 26. It says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you 
and give you peace. Even today, these words are frequently spoken at the close of worship services in Protestant churches precisely because they remind the people of who they are, sinners who have received the free favor of God and have been made his people. The benediction points people to the grace of God by which they approach him. When fallen, sinful creatures come before God, they need to be reminded that God is gracious toward them, that he chooses to bless them not for any merit they possess in themselves, but simply because he, the Lord, has chosen to be merciful to them. God does not treat them as their sin and rebellion deserves, uh, deserve. God is a God of grace, and his grace defines what it means for them to be a people of God. The blessing of Numbers 6 was originally given to the Aaronic priesthood, and this ties it closely to the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament. We should note this because we have a tendency to reduce grace to a kind of divine sentiment. This reduction of grace cheapens forgiveness. We wrongly believe that apologizing will suffice to um, will be sufficient to cover the evil of our sin. But grace is far more than sentimental notion. Grace is connected to God's being and God's action, especially God's action in Christ. It is therefore costly and not to be treated in a light fashion as if it were something cheap. So now he talks about, and this is actually what I'm getting to the point now. It's where he begins to talk about grace and sacrifice. He says, in contrast to cheap sentimentalism, God's grace in the Old Testament is more than a whim or a spineless capitulation to human rebellion. God does not ignore the problem of sin and pretend it does not exist. He feels a holy anger and wrath towards sin and cannot simply pardon the rejection of his rule as if it had never happened. So there is need for atoning action to deal with transgressions of his mandates. Thus God established the sacrificial system under Moses, the supreme manifestation of which the Day of Atonement detailed in Leviticus 16, whereby sin might be addressed. God himself created the sacrificial system. He regulates it via his word and elect priesthood, and ultimately it is God who chooses to accept the sacrifices presented to him. This fact that God is the one who established and regulates the sacrificial system should not be ignored. It's it's significant. It, It is significant because it teaches us that the Old Testament sacrifices were not an attempt by human beings to find something that would placate or cajole an angry God. We wrongly imagined that God was angry with his people and they somehow discovered ways to twist his arm and earn his favor despite their sin. The scriptures teach us that it was God who took the initiative revealing how sinful humans could relate to him. He established the content, the terms, and the results of the sacrifices because his wrath needed to be satisfied in a particular way. This initiative is uh, further evidence of his grace and favor toward his people. This is not humanity reaching up to God, but God reaching down to humanity, an action completely founded in God's unmerited favor toward his people. He establishes by grace the sacrifices which serve to satisfy his justice. The gracious activity of God does not begin with the sacrificial system instituted under Moses, of course. And so that's where we get into... We're going to take a break. We're going to come back to Truman in just a second, all right? We have this verse in Genesis 3, verse, um, chapter 3, verse 21. It says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Okay. Somebody set me up for this verse. What's the context here? What just happened? What's that? Well, what happened before? I mean, what, what, how do we get here? Okay. So Adam and Eve 
are in the garden. We'll say they're frolicking around. There is little Jimmy the lamb running around over here, okay? And um, everything is amazing and wonderful and sinless, etc. And then Adam sinned. He ate the fruit. He rebelled against God. And then all of a sudden he had this knowledge of, of, of sin, knowledge of good and evil. And, um, you know, they, they hid from God. And then they made what? Clothes out of what? Fig leaves. Okay? And then what does God do? God replaces those fig leaves by slaughtering little Jimmy. So this, this creature, this animal that they had seen running around, um, I, give me a little bit of license here, but the, an, an animal that's in, that's in the garden, okay, uh, little Jimmy that they'd seen in the garden is suddenly no longer living. So now all of a sudden, death. Death is introduced. Not only that, they're, they're wearing his carcass, okay? Think about that for a minute. We don't want our kids going to see R-rated movies, rightfully so. We don't want our children, you know, we have to um, shield them from certain things because, one, they're not ready, but two, there's a, there's a shock when all of a sudden you see something, uh, something that you're, you're um, not ready for. And I just, I think about Adam and Eve and how, how shocking it must have been that all of a sudden there is this, this death and they're wearing an, an animal. They're wearing the carcass of an animal or the skin of an animal. And it just, it, it has to be, it had to be a mind-blowing experience. So there is this bloody component to it, although God gave them those skins in grace. He, he kind of ceremoniously covered them with his grace, okay, with that. Second story is um, Abraham taking Isaac um, to, to, ba- to kill him, and then what happens? Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket in his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a bloody, uh, I'm sorry, as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham, Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it said to this day, on the mount, uh, mount, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And so, here you have this idea of it's a similar thing where you have this bloody sacrifice that takes place in order to cover cover sin. Okay, and the you know ultimately, you know, if sin is the problem, then then um, God provides the solution Himself. Um, Genesis 3, for all his wrath at Adam's rebellion, he is revealed to be a, a gracious God. So now, we'll pick back up with, um, with Truman. I've only got two paragraphs here. So it says, It is perhaps worth pausing here for a moment and reflecting on the ex- existential implications of the fact that sacrifice is connected to salvation and grace. Sacrifices were raw and bloody affairs. It is often said by opponents of the meat industry that more people would be vegetarians if they had to kill the animals they eat. That's probably true because slaughtering an animal is a dramatic and powerful event, especially when it is done by a knife rather than by a gun. It involves violence and quite literally blood and guts. Imagine the impact on Adam and Eve 
being clothed with the raw, bloodied hides of the animals slain by God to cover them. This would have been a quite a contrast to the leaves they had chosen for themselves. The Lord was signaling to them that their actions had catastrophic consequences beyond their wildest nightmares. And imagine being present at a sacrifice and seeing the lifeblood literally poured out of a lamb. It's one thing to understand the cultic doctrinal significance of sacrifice. It is quite another to witness it firsthand. Human alienation from God is something that affects us at the deepest level, and it is a problem of catastrophic proportions. The coolly objective ways in which we discuss sacrifice in the lecture room or the transformation of the cross into an item of costume jewelry are eloquent testimonies to the way we have turned the problem of the human condition and the response of God's grace into ideas that verge on being mere abstractions. The violent nature of sacrifice stands in judgment on the inadequacy such conceptions and, and reminds us, I'm sorry, the violent nature of sacrifice stands in judgment on the inadequacy of such conceptions and reminds us of the powerful existential dimension of human rebellion and divine grace. Then here's the, the point. Sin is violent, lethal rebellion against God, and biblical grace is God's violent, raw, and bloody response. Sin is violent, lethal rebellion against God, and grace is God's violent, raw, and bloody response. You ever thought about grace that way? It's it's powerful. It's true. But it generally doesn't preach. Right? So does that preach in most churches today? No, I don't think so. It should. Because, again, like Truman said, way better than I possibly could. You can think about grace as being this abstraction out there, or you can think about grace as being something that is not cheap. And ultimately, those, those animals are nothing compared to the Son of God hanging on a cross with a bloodied back, unable to breathe. Devastating. That's grace. Can we understand grace if we don't understand sin? No, I don't think, no, there's no way. Can we understand the gospel if we don't understand sin? No. I mean, the gospel is good news, but good news is only good news to people if they understand the bad news. And the question is, what are we saved from? We're saved from the wrath of the holy triune God. But what saved us? The love and grace of the holy triune God. The ultimate manifestation of grace is at the cross, for God's love satisfied God's wrath. Okay? Love did not defeat wrath, regardless of what the hymn says. Because if love defeated wrath, that means that there is something wrong with God's wrath, and there is nothing wrong with God's wrath. Okay? It's not like ours, which is capricious and emotional. His is righteous, right? The ultimate manifestation of grace is at the cross where God's love satisfied God's wrath. So three explanations. Grace is God loving the unlovable. Grace is God giving himself to us, not stuff. And sin is violent, lethal rebellion against God. Grace is God's violent, raw, and bloody response. All right. Thoughts or questions? Yes, sir. Mr. Adam, before he sinned, 
have been taught or understood any aspect of grace? Would he have known what, before that happened? Would there be any concept in his heart of even what grace was? Uh, he's asking the question, um, before the fall, would Adam have known, had any concept of what grace was? And I don't know how, because he wouldn't have known what sin was. And I think, you know, you have to, grace is God's response to sin. Right, like how would, how would God describe it to him? Right, right, right. yeah. Disobey me, what's disobedience? Right, yeah, exactly, yeah. And that's why the, I think the name of the tree is very important, right? The knowledge of good, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Anybody else? No? We good? All right, cool. Stuart, you want to close this? Heavenly Father, we, we uh, thank you for your grace. Father, it, as we've talked about it, it's not something we, we deserve. We, don't, we didn't earn it. We can't buy it. We can't inherit it. It's your gift to us because you love us. Father, thank you for the grace that you've shown us through your Son. His sacrifice took the wrath for sin that we deserve so that we could be forgiven and have a restored relationship with you, redeemed. And uh, Father, I thank you for uh, the truth of your word and pray that it would continue to be proclaimed in a way that glorifies you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, sir.